Good morning. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you are here this morning. Again, we're going to continue in Luke chapter 5. So while you're turning there, I've got maybe a surprising confession to make. I'm not sure. You can tell me. I like weddings. So just there, there it is. It's out there. I feel more comfortable now just that you know that I like weddings. So, so for years, though, I was like most guys, you spend your early 20s being in weddings and your early 30s trying to avoid them. Okay, the invitation shows up and I'm thinking, please let me be working. Let me have some reason to not go. Maybe Heather will, will take her mom, so I won't have any uh, reason to have to go to this wedding. But then, back in 2010, I attended my first River Oaks wedding. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> I, I witnessed Bob Pear marry off his oldest, Hannah. I heard Keith Davis speak at Mandy and Wes's wedding. After a few words from Keith... At Amy and Parm's wedding, I'm leaning over to Heather going, can we just get married again? We let, we let Keith do this thing. I uh, heard Chris Kawa do some ceremonies. By the time Berkwitz got around to marrying off his daughters, when it's time for the wedding, I'm like, family, get in the car. We're going to be late. Let's go. We need to be there for this. So what, what happened? What's, what's the change? What makes the difference? The difference is a wedding where the gospel of Jesus Christ is on full display. That's the difference. The difference was learning that that the reality of marriage is pointing to something bigger than itself. And we find that same reality in our passage today, that, that when Jesus points out that you should be feasting and not fasting at a wedding, he's pointing to something bigger about who he is as the groom. When Jesus points out that those who are healthy do not need a physician, but only those who are sick, he's pointing out a bigger reality about himself as the only physician with the cure for sin. So as we read our passage, I'm asking you to look for what Jesus is telling us about himself. What reality is he pointing to? Not only about who he is, but those he came to cure and those he came to feast with. Look with me at Luke 5, 27 through 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So, Father, we, we ask you this morning to help us see the, the truth of your word. Help us see what it is that Jesus is pointing out about himself, about who he came to save. Father, I, I pray this morning that those who are aware of their unworthiness to follow you are comforted by your gospel. And those who think they're too good to follow you would be convicted by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see here our main idea is taken straight from verse 32. It is better to know you are a sinner in need of Jesus than to think you're righteous and be dead in your sin. Said another way from verse 31, it's better to know you are unwell and in need of a physician than to think you're healthy and actually be sick. So walk through the the passage this way. There's something happening here. We're cured by the doctor so we can party with the groom and see how that unfolds through our passage today. So again, 27 and 28, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Jesus saw a tax collector. The word saw there means to look at intently with with purpose. So what did Jesus see when he intently looked at Levi sitting by the road in his tax booth? Because we may hear the the term tax collector and think, man, you know, IRS. Maybe Levi's kind of annoying like those folks that kind of want to come and take our hard-earned money. And it's just mildly annoying. I can assure you, The tax collectors in the Roman Empire are much worse than annoying. Back then, whoever offered the most money to the Romans was awarded the right to collect taxes from his own citizens on behalf of their occupiers. So Levi, here he is, he's collecting taxes on anything and everything that he can. And like all tax collectors, Levi is despised by his fellow Jews. Just imagine the animosity towards this guy who has the audacity to collect money that is directly funding their oppressors. So so what must Jesus have seen when he saw Levi? He sees a traitor. He sees a thief. He sees greed. He sees a collaborator working with the enemy to extort from his own people. He sees a man who has likely been excommunicated from his synagogue. He sees a man who's around the Gentiles so much that he's probably given up on being ceremonially clean. When Jesus sees Levi, he sees a man riddled with the sickness of sin. So what does Jesus do? He says to Levi, follow me. Of course, Jesus says to Levi, follow me. It's the most boss savior move imaginable. Jesus doesn't see in Levi someone who makes team Jesus better. 
In fact, Levi's a liability to Jesus, but he chooses him anyway. And that, my friends, is saving grace. The same grace that saved you and me. Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And and I want you to notice what's missing here. There's no sell everything. There's no qualifier that says get ritualistically clean. Levi, make up for all the evil you've done. Then maybe, maybe you'll be getting close to proving you're worthy to follow me. Jesus says, follow me. It's like what qualifies you to follow Jesus is knowing that you are unworthy to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what does Jesus see when he sees you? He sees another Levi. Jesus is an expert on our sickness of sin. He knows exactly how wicked and weak we are, yet he saves us and keeps us anyway. That is grace. What glorious and scandalous grace that that is. That should give the the most despicable sinner who's repentant in here hope. Should give you hope. So then how does Levi respond in verse 28? And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And we, we read that and we're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus called him. He left everything and followed him. And that what Peter did? I mean, you just, Jesus calls, you leave everything and you follow him. I want you to think a second about Levi. This is a risk. He is hated by his own people. Who who will protect him from retaliation? How will he provide for his family? Peter, this Jesus thing doesn't work out. He can just go back to fishing. For Levi, there is no going back to this way of life. This is high-risk faith. So you might expect from Levi... Here's an expert in the value and worth of everything you could buy, sell, own, or trade because he's been taxing it for years. You might think that someone like that would carefully measure the cost of following Jesus and respond with some tepid moderation. I'll give this a try. We'll see how this works. But what does he do? Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi will now call him Matthew, since he's following Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus. Matthew, which means gift of God. He responds to the gift of salvation with unrestrained joy. He throws this huge party. He invites a large company of his terrible, no good, unclean, tax-collecting, sinning friends to join him. It's easy to guess Matthew's motive here for this party. I mean, when Jesus calls you out of darkness into his light, there's overflowing joy. I mean, for those of you that came to Christ later in life, do you remember initially you had to tell people, you, you couldn't hold it back. That's where Matthew is right here. This overflowing joy. You want to share it with others. So Matthew, he's experiencing exactly how Jesus will turn your life upside down. He knows the irony. And no matter what you 
are feasting on, no matter what you are consuming in this life, you are actually starving until you are feasting with Jesus Christ. Matthew wants all of his fellow sinners to meet and feast with his friend Jesus. In verse 29, you see the phrase reclining at table. That is a big deal. So one theologian helps us understand what that means. In the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal is an honor. It's an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. So reclining at table helps us know that Jesus is not uncomfortable at this party. Now, I don't, I don't know how you are at parties but for me, as the, the introvert party guy, I, once I get to the party, I'm thinking about how long till I can leave. That's not about you if you invited me to your party. It's more about me. And I didn't realize this until people pointed out to me, but I tend to back out of a room just so I can see, is anybody noticing I'm leaving? Okay, good, I'm gone. Okay, that's not, that is not Jesus here. Not at all. He, he's not making a beeline to, to the least sinful guy in the room that he might have the most in common with. He's not hanging out in the corner, counting down the minutes for this party to be over. He is right in the middle of the action, in this house, at a table, surrounded by and reclining with sinners. He's right where he wants to be. He's right where he wants to be in the middle of these tax-collecting sinners. So what can we learn from this? We're beginning to, to see that, that Matthew is, is seeing who Jesus is. He's, and when we see who Jesus is, it leads to joy. We see that he actually wants to be around us. It leads to joy. People are attracted to the joy that we have in Jesus are, are there truths that we need to be convinced of? Are there hills that we will have to die on? Yes, by all means. And at the same time, we remember the exuberant joy of Matthew. Yes, you will be judged for faithfulness to God's word. We will be ridiculed for holding to his truths. But as Acts 5.41 tells us, it is possible to rejoice to rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. I can forget this. We must not let the reality, that reality, steal our joy of belonging to Christ. As Matthew is doing, we can hold on to what is true and still love those around us trapped in sin we need the Lord to give us wisdom on how to joyfully stand for truth. We need the Spirit to give us Jesus' patient love for those around us who desperately need him. So who knows how many people came to faith in Christ as a result of Matthew throwing this party and Jesus associating with his friends. They're like any good piece of literature. This is, this is going too well, right? I mean, something's got to give. Something's got to go wrong. And it does in verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want you to picture the scene. The Pharisees are, are almost surely outside the home. They're, they're, they're glancing in, into doors. They're peering in windows. There's some furtive glances into the courtyard to, to see what's happening. You can tell that they're, they're probably goading each other into kind of confronting what's happening here. Okay, so they, they can't stand what they're seeing. And what are they seeing? The worst sinners imaginable reclining at table with Jesus. He's eating with them. He's drinking with them. He's telling stories with them. He's laughing with them. What is he doing? So there's joy inside the house. Outside, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling. And they're grumbling at Jesus' disciples. So this is our second interaction with the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 5. Remember last week, they questioned Jesus about him forgiving sins. This week, they cannot accept that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And we may hear the Pharisees and think one-dimensional, judgmental, self-righteous bad guys. Just a one-note villain. But I, I want to I back up there on that. And I want us to, to see the Pharisees for, for who they are. Because there's no more compelling villain than the villain who believes he's the good guy. So here are the Pharisees, and they believe with all their heart that they are the good guy. They are true believers in their own righteousness. They believe that they are showing faithfulness to God, displaying their righteousness to all by never associating with unclean sinners. The term Pharisee, it actually means separated ones. I mean, so think about this. That is their self-proclaimed title, separate. Being separate from sinners is core to their identity. So not only are they in disbelief that Jesus is anywhere near this despicable crowd, they are threatened by what Jesus is doing. Their fervent belief even supersedes their awkwardness. Hey, how else do you explain showing up to a party that you were not invited to in order to shame the guest of honor? It'd be weird, even for them, except they earnestly believe in their cause of salvation through separation. So before we move on, be willing to see yourself in the Pharisees. Where do you judge others who are weak in your area of spiritual strength? If your fidelity to a particular spiritual discipline leads you to praise yourself instead of praising Jesus, you are on a slippery slope to self-righteousness. The Pharisees believe that they have a high view of holiness because they compare their holiness to others. But do you see the problem? That's actually a low view of holiness because they think it's attainable. Christian, you, you are united to Christ. That means you are free to seek your brother and sister's good. Rather than grumbling against another, come alongside your brother or sister. You're free to do that to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient 
with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. So we have, we have an impasse here with the Pharisees and Jesus. The problem is Jesus will not fit into what the Pharisees believe. Jesus' presence at this party is a direct challenge to their practice of salvation by separation. So the Pharisees grumble their question in verse 30, Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So despite the way it's asked, despite the ill intent, it's still a good question. Why would the most holy being to ever set foot on earth lower himself to not just tolerate, to not just put up with, but repeatedly choose the company of unclean, unholy sinners? What could possibly be his reason? What, what answers could he possibly give? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Glory, glory in that Savior. Instead of pulling back from sinners, Jesus clearly states his desire for them over the self-proclaimed righteous. This is more than just a pithy proverb where Jesus compares himself to a doctor. In these verses, Jesus is telling us who he is, what he's come to do. And the, and the great physician is here to make the sick healthy. He is not here for the righteous, but to call the sinner to repentance. And we know that Jesus is being ironic as he describes the Pharisees as righteous. We know that there are none righteous, not one but there are so many who think they are, including the Pharisees. There are many who are so strong and so self-reliant, they need no rescue. Like how Matthew shows us that only the unworthy are qualified to follow Christ. The, the Pharisees show us the opposite side of that truth. What, what disqualifies you from following Christ is believing you are so good, you don't need him. The irony here is that there is no one at this party in greater need of Jesus and his forgiveness than the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be shocked to learn that they are the worst sinners at this party because they don't need Jesus. The sickness of their self-righteousness, it blinds them to their greatest need. They are deluded into thinking that that they are well, and it keeps them from the great physician. So that's why it is better to know you are a sinner in need of Jesus than to think you're righteous and be dead in your sin. So you know how some people will refuse to go to the doctor? Maybe it's, maybe it's denial. Maybe it's fear. We don't, we don't want to know if there's bad news so we can go on pretending that everything is fine. We don't want to hear about the blood pressure again. We don't want to see what the scale says. Okay, we don't want to hear the lab work. We don't want to go to the doctor because most of our time, we go on believing that we are our best version of ourselves. But you know when you finally will go to the doctor? 
It's when you're really sick. Some of us, maybe not until a loved one drags us there, but when you are really sick, you will finally go where there's a cure. So if you're here this morning and you're sick and you're low and you're desperate, good. You're close to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are acutely aware of your ongoing sickness, your ongoing unworthiness, and I mean not this just passing, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I mean you feel the actual weight and depth and darkness of how sinful you truly are, good, you're close to Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're, you're thinking, man, I'm not holy enough to be in that church with those people, good. You're supposed to be here. But if you're here this morning and you're feeling pretty confident, you're feeling like you're, you're doing pretty well, maybe you're here at, because a, a family member requested that you, you come with them. But if you're honest, you're sort of comparing your life to theirs and you're the one that seems to have it all together. No real need for Jesus, but more in a place of let's just see if Jesus can make my good life better. I have a strong word of caution for you this morning if you're willing to hear it. The one who feels the least need for Jesus is actually in the most danger imaginable. So my prayer for you is the Holy Spirit would give you eyes not to see your goodness, but to see your sin. To see yourself as you truly are and what you truly need. So a few years ago, Doug Bergson, he, he dropped his nail gun. So he was framing in a fireplace in his home. And it shot a nail into his rib cage. At first he was just annoyed. Then he, he looked down and he saw that every single time his heart beat, the three and a quarter inch nail quivered. And he realized that he was in trouble. So he calmly got into his truck, drove himself to the emergency room, walked in, said to a security guard, I, I need to sit down for a minute. Could you get somebody to help me? So his request, his asking for help, the, the surgeon said that Doug's decision to seek help saved his life. If he had pulled the nail out on his own, he would have died. So this the sickness of sin, it's so much worse than than a nail in your heart. And the flesh hates to hear it, but you cannot cure your sin problem on your own. So humble yourself and seek the physician who wants to heal you. Because Jesus is not just at this, this party to hang out with sinners, right? He's there to call the sinner to repentance. He's there and he's here and his motive is love. He is a physician like no other. He does not tell you what to do in order to get healthy. I mean, that would be a Pharisee move. Oh, you've got a nail in your heart. One, you're dumb for letting that happen. Two, here's a YouTube link for a do-it-yourself nail removal. Come see me when you're better. That would be the Pharisee move. We worship an altogether different physician. What, what if in order for your physician to heal you, he had to take on your sickness? 
What if in order for you to live, your physician had to die? What kind of physician keeps to more than just the the Hippocratic oath of, of do no harm, but willingly walks into harm on behalf of his patient? Jesus is the only doctor you can go to for free who pays at the cost of his own life to make you well. But what about you, you long-term believers? Are you still a patient in need of the great physician? Don't we sometimes feel like I've been a believer for so long, shouldn't I be better by now? We just drop in once every few months to, to get our spiritual physical with Dr. Jesus and think, no, I can handle my sickness of sin on my own. But Christian, this this physician who died for you is now interceding for you. How much more now his fierceness in pursuing you, making you well, eliminating the sickness of sin that threatens you. Therefore, stop pretending. What benefit is it to you to pretend you're well when you're not? Go to your physician He already knows what ails you. Lay your sickness of sin before him and let him give you the medicine of the gospel over and over and over. He is faithful to do it. He is a greater healer, a greater physician than we are sick with sin. So what now? You you were sick. The doctor gives you the cure. He, He makes you well. Now what? To put it bluntly, it's time to party. I mean, you you were headed for a funeral. But because of Jesus, now you're headed to a wedding feast. So every analogy breaks down somewhere, right? I mean, I I like my family doctor. There's a degree of trust there. But at the end of the day, that relationship is almost entirely transactional. I go in. He listens to my lungs. He listens to my heart. I leave. I pay him. Transaction is over. He's really nice but he's probably not coming over for dinner. So we're grateful that Jesus is our great physician who makes us well, but ultimately he is so much more. He is so much closer than just a transaction. Jesus not only calls us and saves us, he remains with us. We are united to him by his spirit as close as a husband and wife. So that's where Jesus goes next in our passage. The doctor makes us well so we can party with the groom. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So we're still at Matthew's house with the Pharisees. And do you know... How some people are so hard-headed, you just can't tell them anything. And I'm going to guess that maybe everybody in here knows someone like that. Somebody's so hard-headed, you can't tell them anything. But here we're getting to see the Pharisees are so hard-hearted, you can't tell them anything. I mean, they, they saw Jesus heal a paralyzed man last week. Jesus just plainly told them why he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners to save them. But, but you can picture their, their objections. Okay, we've seen some things. We, we, we hear you, Jesus. You're here to say, people, but why in the world aren't you making your disciples act holy like we act? What's, what's your problem, Jesus? 
Why are you letting them feast while we fast? So one theologian put it this way, the Pharisees' first complaint is how Jesus saves. They don't like that. He associates while they separate. Their second complaint is how Jesus' disciples. They don't like this either. He feasts while they fast. So in the Old Testament, fasting was typically done to focus on God, especially in times of crisis. Note of the Mosaic Covenant, the Jews were required to fast only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. But at this point, the Pharisees, they were fasting twice a day, basically saying, if you don't keep up with the way that we fast, you're not holy, you're not good. They're holding people accountable to their preferences. So like our earlier comparison between joy and grumbling, this contrast is just as stark. The Pharisees are showing their faithfulness to God by depriving themselves. The disciples are showing their faithfulness to God by enjoying themselves. Pretty stark difference. Some of you grew up this way, but some measure their holiness through misery. How miserable am I? That must mean I'm holy. Jesus turned this upside down. He's measuring holiness with happiness. He's connecting those two ideas, holiness with joy. So one distinction that, that many experience at River Oaks is, is how we talk about holiness, sanctification, discipleship. It is by design that we focus on spirit-cultivated affection for Jesus and joy in him as opposed to trying to hold you accountable to some external standard or behavior. There are times for discipline and duty, but those are fueled always by our delight in resting in the finished work of Christ. That is different. Jesus could just ignore the hard-hearted Pharisees, but he doesn't. You'd be completely right to just say, you know what, I'm I'm done with you jokers. But he doesn't. He, He gives them another chance to understand both who he is and what they are missing. Jesus gives them an example of a wedding. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The bigger reality, Jesus is the groom. He's at the wedding. His followers are feasting. It would make sense to fast at a funeral. You're not at a funeral. You are at a wedding celebration. Jesus is the groom. It is time to party. So Jesus is pointing this out. With his arrival, there's something new happening here. We know its promises fulfilled from old, but this this coming, it's, it's a new era. In his presence, it is time for feasting, not fasting. And the people who are attending this wedding, they've been starving generation upon generation, year upon year, starving. And the difference in how the Pharisees and Jesus approach starving sinners is clear. You're starving, and the Pharisees give you a cookbook. You you need food, and they hand you a recipe. You're starving. Jesus says, come and eat. Come and eat. Come and dine with me. That's new. Jesus presses the newness of what he's doing with these two parables, and they're, they're directly connected to a wedding. We should be thinking about fancy clothes, some wine connected to this wedding celebration. In verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. 
If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. You will ruin a new garment by cutting it up and patching it onto an old garment. If I get a dress shirt, a really nice dress shirt, I'm, I'm cutting it up to fix a hole in a hoodie that's nice and grimy from my college years that I should have thrown away, that makes no sense. It makes no sense to ruin something new, put it on something old when it won't work, that it'll stretch, it'll rip and ruin the old garment as well. Old wineskins, they stretch and they become brittle over time. You're putting new wine in that old wineskin as it ferments, it expands and explodes the skin. You lose the wine, you lose the skin. New wine needs new wineskins. And we're still at the beginning of the new unfolding way that Jesus is saving sinners and making disciples. But we can already see from verse 39, some are going to reject this. The Pharisees are, are satisfied with the old so much so they have no desire to even try the new. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. They cannot fathom this new way of Jesus saving and making disciples. They don't even want to consider it. Well, that, that should caution us. That should caution us this morning. It should instruct us on how we understand and apply what, what Jesus has done for us. This new wine and new cloth, it points to the new covenant sealed by the blood and body of Christ. So brothers and sisters, you can't just patch Jesus onto an old way of thinking and living. You can't just patch a little gospel onto the law. You can't try to fit a little grace onto legalism. Putting a new patch on an old garment or new wine in an old wineskin, it would be like slapping the band-aid of the law on your chest when what you really need is a heart transplant that only Jesus can do. But where in our passage do we see any hint? The new covenant or how Jesus is going to cure sin and prepare his bride, where do we see it? We get a clue in verse 35, where Jesus foreshadows the cross, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. There will be a time for fasting when the groom is taken away. That word there, it means an act of violence, specifically a violent removal by death. So just like the doctor who dies to bring the cure, here we have a groom dying to secure his bride. There is no feast without the famine of the cross. There is no eternal life without his sacrificial death. Brothers and sisters, we aren't drinking the wine of the new covenant unless our groom drinks the cup of God's wrath the whole way down. There is no wedding unless we are dressed in his righteousness. There is no spotless bride without a groom who takes her blame. Brothers and sisters, we need this groom. We are sick. We have the blemishes. We have the spots. We are imperfect. We need to be presented blameless 
before God. Only Jesus, our groom, takes our blame, takes the sickness of our sin, takes our death and gives us life. There is no wedding celebration without a tomb for our groom. There is no union with the groom without his glorious resurrection. So I mentioned that I like weddings. <laughs> I mean, how can I not? When, when they point to the greater reality of the love of our groom and the glory of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, until Jesus returns or we are called home, here's the greatest reality between those two advents. Because of the death and resurrection of our groom, we are his bride. We are united to him because of the Holy Spirit. Because of our union with Christ, we are closer to him right now, at this moment, than anyone who was physically present at this party, who was anyone that was physically present with Jesus, his entire earthly ministry. We are closer to him right now, united to our groom by his spirit. So let's celebrate. Let's celebrate together. Let's rejoice in his presence with great joy as we worship together. Father, I ask that you would press this truth into our hearts. Help us see that, that the, the way to you is knowing that, that we don't deserve you. What we deserve is your righteous wrath and punishment upon our sin. Yet, Father, you poured that out on your son so that we might be his bride so that he might cure us of our sin. Father, we, we praise you for this plan. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Holy Spirit, please press this truth into our hearts. Give us joy that comes from the peace that we have with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.